You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. The Warriors have no chance unless Steph Curry goes off. He should shoot it even more. Steph Curry is the Warriors. Or maybe not. Maybe Steph can <laughs> not hit a three-pointer for the first time in a game since November of 2018. And they could still win the game. What now for the Celtics? Can they get back into this? It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. we got lots to get to tonight, but we're going to start with last night's Game 5 and give you the Straight Talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. Fitz, I'm going to pat myself on the back for a second here. I'm, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say that I was unique in my analysis this way, but... We talked about it last night. A lot of folks on Around the Horn with me said the key to this game was going to be Steph Curry. As long as Steph Curry has another monster game like we saw in game four, the Warriors will be fine. If not, it's all Celtics. And I said, even if Steph has a great game, this Celtics team can win if they take care of the ball. If they hit that magic number of 16 turnovers again, it is over for them. And that's what we saw last night. There was a lot to get to when it comes to defensive decision-making and the reasons why Steph's teammates had to step up and did step up. But more than anything, it comes down once again to the turnover ratio for the Celtics that allows the Warriors to not have to finish in half court, that allows the transition buckets, that disrupts the Celtics' ability to set up their offense. It's all about the turnovers. Well, you're right. You were right last night, and it it reared its ugly head yet again. And if you're the Celtics, I'm wondering where you take your hope from right now because you could look at it a couple of games ago and say, well, it took a Herculean effort, the perfect night from Steph. Everything had to go right, and that's the way that they managed to win. You could at least compartmentalize it. Well, then what did we see last night? A night where Steph looked human, and, and that's okay. Like The fact that everybody else seemed to gain confidence around Steph during the course of the game, while Boston, every time they got themselves close, they found a way to shoot themselves in the foot. And every time they got themselves close, the Warriors found a way to get an unexpected player to make an unexpected play. And that just speaks to what we've seen, not just in last night's game, but over the last several games, that the Warriors just seem prepared to handle every single moment. And every time they zig, it feels like the Celtics thought they were going to zag. And they're one step ahead in this entire process. Yeah, if you look at it, Boston's turnovers, 16.3% of their possessions for the series are turnovers. That would be dead last for the entire NBA in the regular season. And that includes all those teams, fits that we're not trying to win basketball games this season. <laughs> really bad teams. The Warriors are plus 24 in points off of turnovers in this series. It is the series. In fact, I was listening to the fantastic Low Post podcast today, and um, and Lowe's guest was, uh, I'm going to forget his name, but he had this incredible, completely told the whole story, assist-to-turnover ratio for Tatum and Brown together. The two games that they won, 18 assists, six turnovers, 14 assists, four turnovers. The three games that they've lost, Tatum and Brown combined for six assists, six turnovers, eight assists, eight turnovers, eight assists, nine turnovers. Mm. That's it. Are they combining to create or combining to turn the ball over? And that's a huge part of it. Now, we can get into all of the other players that had to step up because that's huge. Andrew Wiggins, 26 points, 13 boards. It was the Wiggins game 
which was fun. <laughs> Clay Thompson put up 21, continued his streak of great Game 5s. Uh, we hear a lot about the Game 6, Clay, but Game 5, Clay, statistically even better. By the way, Chris Herring was the guest on the low post from Sports Illustrated. Thanks to producer Devin for that. Uh, he had that great statistic. Um, but Fitz, you know, you needed those guys to step up because we've been asking all series, is this the right way to defend Steph? Right When he gets on the perimeter and you're asking usually the big on the screen and roll to step up right up to the perimeter, right up to the three-point line, and force him to shoot, we've noticed that he can shoot even in those tight spaces, 55% on tightly contested threes. So should we blitz him instead, pick him up at half court, trap him, throw more bodies at him, make him give it up? And we wonder why they weren't doing that. Now, last night might be why. Because when they did blitz, when they did pick him up at half and force the ball out of his hands, it got Steph out of rhythm, but it allowed everybody else to have wide open looks. And that includes guys like Draymond, who really get the energy and the confidence from those early buckets that open up when they decide that they're going to take out Steph and let everyone else beat them. Energy and confidence, I think, is such a huge part of what we saw. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, presented by Progressive Insurance. And when you start thinking about the growth in confidence I'll go back to Poole and, and even the sequence at the end of the third quarter that everybody was talking about on Twitter where the Celtics miss a bad shot. They don't play any defense on a quick turnaround that gets the ball up the court. And then a deep three makes it. And it's an ugly three, but it works. And you just think about the growth and confidence you saw for every shot made from every player not named Steph from the Warriors, and it was palpable. You could feel it. And as the game went on, because of that confidence, every time they set up an offense, felt like they knew what they were doing with it. The Celtics didn't feel like they had a great plan. And we had a guest yesterday, and forgive me for not remembering which one said it, but said that one of the keys was going to be, would Boston stop driving so deep into the lane? Would they pull up a little bit because of the way the defense was being, the defensive sets were being played by the Warriors? They didn't, and they kept driving deep into the lane where the Warriors had an answer, and it looked clunky. So it, yeah. it just felt like there was a coaching advantage by the way Golden State turned around and, and got ahead of it. It also felt like through that process there was a rhythm advantage. It got so comfortable quickly for the Warriors that every time I thought Boston would have an answer, they didn't. And by the way, again, Devin coming through big. Uh, Henry Abbott from True Hoops was the person that, that made that analysis. And it was stuck in my brain last night when I was watching them do exactly what he said they shouldn't do throughout the course of the game. Yeah, uh, it's absolutely right. Uh, you know, in addition to them suffering the consequences of their own turnovers, the Warriors have been really good protecting the ball themselves, which has not allowed the Celtics to use transition buckets to get confidence, to get back into games when they get behind. Both of the teams have been consistently not great in the half court. So the difference has been that the Warriors have had far more opportunities to excel in the transition game. And Richard Jefferson was on NBA Today talking about how when they were able to get the ball to anybody not named Steph, that depth and their ability to step up was huge. When you get a guy like Wiggins, when you get contributions from Poole, Gary Payton, it allows for a star to have an off night. Right. Like So Steph Curry didn't shoot you out of it. Right. He just didn't make his normal shots. And the reason why he didn't shoot you out of it is because he was able to take good shots because his teammates were contributing. Yeah, I mean, Steph was 7 of 13 on twos. He had eight assists and one turnover. He wasn't bad. He just couldn't shoot from three. I think he was 0 for 9. Um, and that's not something that you're used to seeing. Worse than that, though, the Celt, uh, the um, the Warriors as a team, only nine for forty from deep. This wasn't about everybody else picking up from three. 
It was about the decisions made by the Celtics, getting more aggressive, aggressive, more traps, taking step out of his rhythm, and those other guys being able to take advantage. Now, the question fits looking ahead is, in the upcoming game, game six, if they decide to try this again, let's take Steph out. Will Wiggins and Clay and Poole make their shots again? Will Steph make his? Because for all the conversation about what the Celtics did well against Steph, he had a lot of open looks that he just missed. Out of rhythm, off night, whatever the answer. I'm not giving the Celtics credit for all of that. He just missed a lot of shots. What are the chances he does it again? I'll tell you what, his teammates are pretty confident that he's going to come out firing next game after his streak of every finals game or playoff game Mm. he's ever played, having at least one, three, or whatever it was. I mean, a lot of two, four-year streaks uh, got broken last night. They think he's going to come out feeling like it's, it's time to show everybody again. Well, it wouldn't surprise me if he did. And if you're Boston, you got to throw your hands up and just say, what next? Because you could say, yeah, but the off to season. many of th- Exactly. The, the, the off-season. It feels like it's that's over. what happens. <laughs> and I'm trying to be measured and not overreact because that's something we laugh a lot about on the show. But, yeah. man, just watching the Warriors find the one way to, to pull out a win and then another game have a totally different way to pull out a win – it's just got to be deflating if you're Boston looking mm-hmm. at it saying the one thing that you got to do is look in the mirror and they're not doing that well. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz at Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. No contract, no compromise. We'll get back to the NBA Finals. We'll get Legler on to give us a little bit more insight into that. But we're going to switch gears now because Deshaun Watson spoke to the media today. It was what he didn't say that continues to tell the story of what's going on in Cleveland. Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. We're going to talk to Jenny Vrentas later in the show. Her New York Times report with new details about the allegations against Deshaun Watson, which include claims that he visited at least 66 different massage therapists in a 17-month period, and uh, comments about uh, from Deshaun Watson himself about how he didn't regret anything and had never disrespected any women. We're both uh, things that inspired other women to come forward and add to the cases now of civil suits against him. He spoke today at Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. We'll get to Jenny's reporting later, but I want to talk first, Fitz, about some of the things he said today because we've not heard much from Deshaun Watson. There was basically a year of almost silence uh, when he was refusing to sort of play for the Texans. They were simultaneously fined to let him sit while the initial allegations of criminal and civil complaints were uh, started to be handled. And then we heard from him when he was introduced with that record-breaking deal with the Browns. And as I said, he said he didn't regret anything, that he never assaulted or harassed or disrespected anyone. And some women heard that and decided to come forward after not originally filing suit because they were so upset by the fact that he seemed to believe he had done nothing wrong. Well, he spoke again today, Fitz, and it, it sure felt like he had gotten very well trained And some of his answers sounded like just the thing a lawyer or a representative would tell you to say. And then a couple times it seemed like he got tripped up when he wasn't expecting a question. Yeah, I I think realistically what you just said is such a huge part of what I felt in listening to him speak. I I didn't feel like I was listening to somebody speak. I felt like I was listening to somebody that had been coached repeat what they're supposed to say and not answer the questions. And that's just uh, I understand for anyone that's now going to suddenly clap back on Twitter like a big courageous keyboard warrior. I understand at some point that there are limitations to what you can say, but you also can't then try and answer around a question in a way that paints you in a particular light if you simply can't answer the question 
for legal reasons. So you can't have it both ways in any of this conversation. What we heard today was Deshaun try and skate around so many of the very direct questions he was being asked. Yeah, and to your point, his lawyer decided to go on radio stations unprompted and very clearly expressed what appears to be the overriding feeling from both him and Deshaun and their team, which is the idea that even if he had been seeking sexual pleasure during the massages, that wouldn't be illegal, which, by the way, it is. And even if he had harassed and made women uncomfortable, that wouldn't be a crime. Maybe not, but certainly it is sexual harassment. Uh, and if it goes to the level of what he's been accused of, which is pulling out his genitals, forcing women to perform sex acts, then it absolutely is a crime. So I guess what I'm trying to figure out as I listen to him speak is has he convinced himself even that putting these women in positions during what are supposed to be professional massages is okay? Or that somehow in his head, prompting these women and scaring them into potentially feeling like they might be in danger or otherwise is okay? Because that's sometimes what it sounds like, especially here when he was asked why a jury should believe him. I understand that question, and I definitely respect it. But I feel like with this environment coming off the football field, it's hard to answer that question, uh, without, especially without talking to anybody on my legal team. Um, but at the same time, you know, I've been honest and I've been truthful about my stance. Um, and that's, you know, I never forced anyone. I never assaulted anyone. So um, that's what, you know, I've, I've been saying it from the beginning. And I'm going to continue to do that and, and until all the facts come out on the legal side. I have to continue to just, you know, go with the process for my legal team and, and um, you know, the court of law. So first he starts by obfuscating, right? Oh, I don't, I can't really answer that if my legal team's not here and yada, yada. But then he says what he continues to repeat fits. And the fact that he uses the same language every time, I never forced anyone, I never assaulted anyone. I never assaulted anyone. I've always said I never assaulted anyone. To me, sounds like, and he doesn't have to be honest, right? If he's trying to protect himself, he could certainly lie. He's not beholden to anything while talking to the media here. But if he wants to convince himself he's telling the truth, in his mind, continually pleading with someone to perform a sex act, putting your genitals on them, masturbating in front of them. In his mind, he might convince himself that those acts are not assault. Yeah, and I'm sure in your mind then you're negotiating why there was a willing participant without understanding the situation that you created or even seeing how willing the participant had been in that moment. But ignorance is never an excuse for breaking the law. And there, there has to be some common sense element to this, too. Like, I, I mean, I'm a grown man and I've had massages. I would never imagine just turning around being like, well, here we go. Let me present you. Like, that doesn't seem like something a normal person does in that situation. And I don't And certainly not are. 60 plus times, right? I, it's very clearly if this is and these allegations are true, it's a predilection for putting someone in a position during which they are uncomfortable. If he wanted this to happen, he could seek out people who are paid for this. That is illegal, but he could easily find people to do this for him. It feels like the kink or the perversion is the idea of making someone uncomfortable and having that control over them. Which is in and of itself such a huge problem. Terrifying. I, I, uh, yeah. the, the just and, and how do you rationalize? If somebody's already rationalized that to themselves, how do you move them forward to make them understand not only their wrongs, but how to improve as a human being to never do these things again? And that's... Right. That's a difficult part of this. Ownership is also a difficult part of this. And and frankly, even just the 66, like, you know how many times you've gone to see somebody. I was stunned when he was asked directly, did he believe he had booked massages with 66 different women? This was his answer. 
I mean, I can answer. I, I, I don't think so uh, for what me and my attorneys went through. But at the same time, you know, that's a that's more of a, a legal question that I can't really get into details about. Um, so you'll probably have to ask my attorneys and things like that to confirm. Okay, so the reporting from Jenny has spoken to most of these women or gotten verification that they saw him during that 17 month period. And his answer was that. I mean, that sounds like someone who's run out of the talking points they were given. Same thing when he was asked if he tried to settle the cases. I feel like, you know, there's a lot of articles that's out there and, and facts and things like that. Um, you know, there was a process that was going on back in November uh, with another organization. Um, so I can't really get too far in details with that. But, you know, with the process that was going on before I became a Cleveland Brown, uh, that's a whole nother discussion. Okay. That's not an answer to did you try to settle the cases, but it does sound like he's alluding to the possibility that when he was with the Texans, the Texans potentially tried to offer to settle the cases and take care of this, or he was in conversations with the Texans about potentially doing so. There's another report that as there were conversations with Miami, the Miami ownership said, unless we can get every single one of your accusers to settle, we're not comfortable moving forward, and that they presented his accusers with a settlement, some of whom wouldn't take it. All of these things are not a surprise or something that he doesn't know. But when he says that we need to go to my lawyers or in conversation with my lawyers, anytime he goes to that, he has run out of the talking points provided. And it makes it less and less easy to believe that what he's saying is true. Well, especially if you're the Texans, you, you have to be really uncomfortable with that answer regarding settlement because they were just added to these lawsuits. Right. Mm -hmm. And we now know that that's an added development. So all of a sudden, essentially in his answer, he's saying, well, that was a different organization. If you're asked if you chose to settle and you say it was a different organization, you're implying that the organization is part of this. If I'm the Texans, I'm livid right now and I mm -hmm. want to come out with all the information I have if I was on the right side of this to make sure the world knows that I was on the right side of this. If I'm silent, that also speaks. Well, and so is the person who asked if he plans to countersuit because he said, you know, I, I shouldn't have maybe said I don't regret anything because of this has impacted my family and my relationships and the Browns and everyone else. So I do feel bad. I do regret that it's triggered and impacted so many people. Oh, are you going to countersue then because of what it's done to your life? Not a good answer that he had there, right? Yeah, all of these things this contribute is all to making disaster. this story far more complicated. We'll get back to it in a bit, but we're going to get back to Game 5 of the NBA Finals with a guest coming up next on Spain & Fitz. Spain & Fitz, the podcast. Spain & Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're trying not to overreact from one game in a series, but, man, it's hard after watching what the Warriors did last night and how they managed to take it to the Celtics. So let's get some expertise from one of our favorites, ESPN NBA analyst Tim Legler joining us now. Legs, always appreciate your time. Uh, how, just, just make it make sense for me. If you're Boston and you just watched everybody not named Steph Curry beat you in this game, how do you rebound from that? Man, it's tough. I mean, that's definitely you know a blow because I'm sure if they're thinking to themselves, if this guy has really hurt us for four straight games, he's been the best player in the series by far. We finally do a better job of, 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 you know, getting two on him off screens, forcing him out. He took a lot of long distance off the dribble threes. You accomplished your mission. Oh, for nine from the three, you still lose. That is definitely something where your head is reeling a little bit as you get on that plane and you head back to Boston. But I will say this. This is a, an incredibly tough-minded group of guys. That, 
you know, they've got some inexperience with their best players, and I think some inconsistency there, which has hurt them. But overall, I, I do know this. They're going to make this an absolute rock fight in game six. And their defense has carried the day for them most of the season. They're going to have to rely on that at all costs to get it done, at least to get them to a winner-take-all scenario on Sunday. Legs, we saw in the first handful of games that their approach to Steph was, we're going to try to stop him, but if he's the one who beats us, we'll we'll see if that's you know that's the way that this Warriors team will succeed. They didn't pick him up at half. They weren't aggressive. They didn't blitz. They didn't trap. So last night, after he has that huge game four, they changed that approach. And they say, we're taking out Steph, see if everyone else can beat us. And we maybe find out why blitzing Steph doesn't work because all of his teammates stepped up and had the opportunity to get in rhythm and get hot because of the wide open looks they were getting uh, because of how it threw everything at Steph. What do you do in the next game? Do you say, I don't think his teammates can repeat that? Or do you say, I don't think Steph can come back and get hot after an off night? Yeah, you're you're right. And I called for, you know, after after game four, I, I said, listen, you cannot sit there and guard this guy this way for an entire series and go home knowing you never made some sort of an adjustment where you targeted him. You get on the high side, you know, denying him off screens. When he jumps out off a down screen or any sort of guard action, pick and roll action, you get two on him. And you see what else these guys have that have been very inconsistent for them, mainly, you know, Clay Thompson and Draymond Green in particular. Let's see what they have. Uh, can they rise to the occasion and beat us? I mean, Wiggins is pre- pretty solid throughout. Um, but he was spectacular last night. And I think what happened was, you know, they really played off of Steph's drawing attention. Wiggins was so decisive when he would get the ball back, whether it was on a dive or in the middle of the floor or in transition, so decisive in attacking and using his athletic ability as length to have really, I think maybe arguably the best game of his career. He's had better scoring nights in Minnesota. I don't know if he's ever played better than he has the last two games, to be honest with you, considering what's at stake in the stage. So, okay. We, we tried that, and now these guys beat us. I still think with this team, the way to go is you're going to have to continue to try to do what you can against Steph Curry to not allow him to get into rhythm. Now, look, maybe you don't do it to the extent that they did last night because they, they sold out to him pretty much the entire game. Yeah. Um, I'll say this, though, guys. Their, their, their defense – is not what cost them that game. Their offense no. cost them the game. Mm-hmm. Without question, their offense cost them the game. They had 18 turnovers. They had a rough night out of Jalen Brown. Jason Tatum had just a couple of spurts where he was very good, but for the most part, it was, like, again, just not great. He was okay. The numbers are pretty good in the series. He has not played that well, has not been the best player on the floor in any one of these five games, has not had a signature game. Um, Brown was very good. Derek White, they had four points off their bench. When you take out the six points they got in garbage time, at the end of the game, they had four points off their bench. They were outscored 31-4 to four off the bench. You know, where's Derek White? Where's Al Horford? Where's Marcus Smart? These guys that are so good for them when they have these games, when they look like a champion, those guys have a big part in that. They were nowhere to be seen last night. So, for me, their offense cost them the game. And, and I think you can get by playing them again the same way defensively, figuring Wiggins won't be as good. And, you know, if you continue to do the same job on Steph and Clay and hopefully Wiggins isn't as good as he was the last two games. I think Boston, if they play better offensively, they feel very good about their chances of getting this back to the Bay Area. It's Spain and Fitz there. Spain, Jason Fitz. We're talking to ESPN NBA analyst Tim Legler. So, Legs, you know turnovers are a problem for the Celtics. I know they're the problem. We all know they're the problem. How do they stop turning over the basketball? 
It's very simple. I mean, honestly, because, look, some of these are forced. Obviously, great defenses will, will force some things. And, and Golden State did a good job, particularly, I thought, Gary Payton, the second, Wiggins in particular, Draymond, those three guys anchored that. They had deflections. They had plays at the rim. But there was also, at least out of the 18 turnovers they had, there had to be eight of them that were completely unnecessary and unforced, where they're throwing the ball ahead when they don't need to, when you can advance it with the dribble. They're, they're driving from angles on one wing and trying to make some sort of a home run pass out to the opposite side of the floor from under the backboard or to the top of the key from under the backboard, balls that are getting stolen. So they, they can look at film, and those ones you just have to own as a player and say, listen, I can't do that. i got to be smarter than that. There's no reason for me to make that play. And you take it upon yourself individually to clean that up. If they can keep that turnover number in that 8, 10, even 12 range, you got a great chance. When you give a team this good offensively that many extra chances, when you lose the turnover battle 18 to 6, you're just not giving yourself a legitimate chance to win the game. You're, you're doing yourself a disservice. And that's what they need to clean up. And a film session can really do that. But it's got to take individual introspection to understand these are plays that just are unnecessary. You don't need to try to hit a home run right there. Let's be smart. Manage the ball. Let's get a shot on this possession. One of our greatest assets we have is our size, athletic ability, and length on the offensive glass. So at worst case, let's get something up on the rim. We cannot give them the basketball without a shot attempt. It's Spain and Fitz here, Spain, Jason Fitz. We're talking to Tim Legler, ESPN NBA analyst. You can follow him at Legs ESPN. A lot of conversation after the last game about Draymond. Not just how bad he was, but uh, Steve Kerr's decision to pull him, how he would react coming back in. What did you see in terms of the way the Celtics defended, in terms of the way the Warriors attacked? What did you see that allowed Draymond to be effective? It's very simple. He's a different player when he is seeing and anticipating the ball coming to him, knowing that he's going to attack and be decisive ahead yeah. of time. Mm-hmm. When he loses confidence, he tends to react after he gets the ball. Now you've got a problem on your hands because he's not a natural scorer. He's certainly not a pure shooter. So if you're not in an anticipatory mindset, knowing the action that Steph and Clay create means the ball comes back to me in the middle of the floor, in the middle of you know, the top of the key area, with space, I have to make them pay for playing me this way. Because otherwise we're playing with four players on offense. And he knows how much he's hurting the team. And he, he knew it. And, and, look, and look, I don't think it was that tough of a decision. I heard our guys that called the game say that was a really tough decision for Steve Kerr. It wouldn't have been for me. I could tell you that. Because he was, he was that bad offensively. You didn't have a choice now, he got a little bit of his mojo back last game, and the reason is because as the action is taking place and those guys are jumping out at those, def- at those ball handlers, and Curry and Clay in particular, those shooters, Poole gets some of that too, he is turning and his hands are out, and he's already, as the ball's coming to him, he was making up his mind. He was going to go straight line dribble drive toward the rim and try to make something happen. Whether that ends up being a pass or a shot doesn't matter. What matters is you're ready to go make a play. And I thought he was very much back on his heels in Boston. He looked like he was rattled a little bit with his confidence. He got some of that back at least last night, enough to help them. And, again, it's just these little splashes of help from Clay, from Draymond, from Poole. And then Wiggins has been great the entire series, and so has Steph. Those other guys have given you just a little dash of a run when you need it, a, a key shot at the right time uh, to get this to a 3-2 series lead. And Draymond had a hand in that last night. 
Always appreciate your expertise. You can follow him on Twitter at LegsESPN. Catch him across all of our coverage. Tim Legler. Tim, thanks, thanks so much Tim. for the time, man. We appreciate you. Hey, anytime. Always my pleasure. Take care, guys. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Progressive can protect your home, auto, boat, motorcycle, ATV, RV, and more. In short, a lot of things. Bundle today at Progressive.com. All right, one of the goats in all of sports is coming back for one of all of sports' biggest events. We'll get into that next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app at Sirius XM. Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Here for a full two hours tonight with the NBA. Uh, remember, you'll be able to hear the NBA Finals on ESPN Radio. The next game will be Thursday, so we'll be a little short then. But we get a full show. But even in a full show, Sarah, sometimes there's just so much going on that we got to get to all of it the way only this show can. It is time for some quickies. Quickies with Spain and Fitz. We get in and out of topics fast. All right, we start this thing with a little bit of fake clay. Fake clay Thompson. Is uh, everybody knows him? Everybody's seen him on on social media. If you haven't, he looks like maybe a little pudgier version of Clay, and he has now been banned from the arena and fined ten thousand dollars by the Golden State Warriors, banned for life for getting out on the court and taking some shots. There, he uh, he managed to bypass security. He looks like Clay Thompson. They didn't think anything of it for the second time in his lifetime. He was able to get out on the court, took some shots. They figured it out, and then bam, lifetime ban. Uh, by the way, not just banned from Warriors games, but it says on this, Golden State Warriors, Santa Cruz Warriors Chase Center, Kaiser Permanente Arena, National Basketball Information, you are banned from attending any future NBA, WNBA, G League, 2K League, concert, event held at uh, Chase Center, Thrive City, Kaiser Permanente Arena, Santa Cruz, California. Like, you can't go to anything anymore. He says it's worth it, Fit. He said... Technically, I did not trespass. I talked to security, went through metal detectors, and walked right into the building. They welcomed me with open arms. I also never claimed to be Clay. Was it worth it to lose 10K on tickets and be banned for life? Absolutely. I was an NBA player for 10 minutes, bro. And then he says, technically didn't trespass. I'm also not mad at all. I get it. I infiltrated them twice. I would ban me too. I'm being contacted by a lot of news organizations to do interviews. As of now, I will not be doing any. Don't want to make this a bigger deal than it is. The Chase Center has every right to ban me. I get it. No hard feelings. Had fun doing it. Thumbs up. <laughs> and post a whole YouTube video uh, about, you know, um. being fake clay that shows him walking through, taking shots, being on the court. All the good stuff. So I guess he says it's worth it. I mean, to each their own. And look, I appreciate shooters shoot, you know. But if you uh, if you get out there and you get caught, you know you're going to get yourself in trouble. And at some point, you know real clay is going to come by. That's the one thing about this. Like, it's inevitable that real clay is going to be on the court. And then Spider-Man everybody's going to be like, that's yeah. fake clay. And then all of a sudden, uh, you're out on it. Look, I, I just want to know how tall he is. Because, you know, Clay's six six. Is this guy tall enough that, you know... He really in the in the video he does not look that much like him. I'm actually kind of sad that they bought it. I mean, he he to me he looked like a little bit, a little bit pudgier version. Um, His says, face really doesn't uh, look like that much. Like he's got the hood up and everything in this, and it, I didn't buy it at all. But you know according what? According to the Google machine, he's six three. So all right. So he, I guess he, if you're short, you oftentimes think someone who's tall is just like tall. You you can't really tell how how much bigger they are than you. Yeah, well, I wouldn't know anything about tall. That, yeah. That's the one uh-huh. thing I'm sure of. All right, let's move on to the next story on Quickies. Quickies. 
And this one, obviously, we've kept an eye on the Brittany Griner situation. Uh, we have uh, more news and update on it. WNBA star Brittany Griner will remain in Russian custody through at least July 2nd. So remembering that she's been held since February when she was detained at a Moscow airport after authorities there claimed she was carrying vape cartridges containing cannabis oil. So uh, last month, the U.S. Department, uh, the U.S. State Department uh, reclassified her as wrongfully detained. But now for the third time, it's been extended and she will be there at least until July 2nd. Yeah, TJ Quinn's been great on this, and today he posted some comments from Danny Gilbert, who is a s- assistant professor um, at Air Force and a doctor, and is commenting on on this and said, "Hostage diplomacy cases rely on the pretense of law. The Russians won't ever say we're holding Brittany Griner hostage, but by repeatedly postponing her trial, they're communicating their intentions." So she, uh, her work is in military and strategic studies and said, dragging out her detention, missing court deadlines. These are key indicators that we should question the legitimacy of her arrest, precisely why the U.S. classified it as a wrongful detention. So all those who say she should have known better, why did she do this? We don't even know that she did anything. And we also do know that she is not facing legitimate court dates as they continue to miss deadlines, further detain her, push back what they're calling an investigation fits. It has been months if you're really investigating whether someone had a vape cartridge and a small amount of hashish oil, you'd be done by now if you were doing it earnestly. And that's the scariest thing about this is it very much now is clear that they're using this as a sort of political prisoner situation with an intent to try to get some sort of trade off or at least to use her as a pawn as they continue to engage in war with Ukraine and other activities. Um, And that was the biggest fear all along. I think to anybody that has comments on this on social media, I would just implore you, like, at some point, an American is being wrongfully detained. No matter what you think of any of the other situations, an American is being wrongfully detained. And that needs to stop. There's got to be a way. And she's a human being that you're somehow celebrating the terrifying reality of being stuck in Russian detention for months with no access or ability to talk to friends and family or anything. I mean, I I just the, the, the desire to play gotcha or to be right or whatever it is is just awful yeah there, there's got to be a sense of, of humanity here and also a sense of national pride we need to get her home and i know that fight will continue let's go to the next story quickies the goat heading to one of the goat events seven time wimbledon champion serena williams will be coming back to the grass courts of wimbledon later this month she was given a wild card entry to the tournament that we will all have all eyes on. She will compete in the ladies' single, according to announcements from Wimbledon on Tuesday. She also took to social media uh, to say SW and SW19 on Instagram. It's a date, 2022. See you there. I am so excited. Yeah, yeah, extremely excited. Man, the amount of pressure that will be on her, the amount of pressure that will be on her after suffering an injury and many thinking that perhaps her attempt to, to to get that 24th Grand Slam singles trophy would, would be over and, and that age was finally catching up. Man, this is going to be so highly publicized, so talked about. I mean, the pressure on her and our desire to see her pull this off, just it's going to be it's going to be a scene. It's going to be a great moment for women's tennis, though. Eyeballs are always great, and it's a yeah. reminder of the power that Wimbledon has. So just the chance to see a great go at it again is is special, and we just need to press pause on these moments yeah. in time to appreciate them. Real By quick. the way, SW, okay. of course, her initials, SW19, the postal code for Wimbledon, hence the uh, hint at her intention to play. 
Look at that. See, that's why Sarah's smarter than I am. Uh, Let's go to the next story. Quickies. Quick one here. Uh, It wasn't that long ago that we were telling you that surprisingly the Boston Bruins fired Bruce Cassidy as their head coach. Well, uh, Bruce Cassidy has now been hired by the Vegas Golden Knights. So a, a, a coach that had a tremendous amount of success in Boston heads to Vegas where they will now have, I believe, their fourth head coach in the last seven years. So uh, Vegas is a place that turns them over quick. But a, a voice for veterans comes into a team with a lot of veterans. Seems like a good – Emily Kaplan texted me and said it was a good hire. She likes it. That's all the endorsement I needed. I am just excited about you accidentally writing Butch Cassidy on our document for our show oh, instead yeah. of Bruce Cassidy. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. really made me wonder if they might hire someone with the last name Sundance or someone. Can we call whatever his assistants are kid just for fun? Well, uh, I mean, that, if Bruce uh, wants to do like a show with me, like we could do a go. Vegas Golden Night show and I'll be the Sundance. I'll be your Sundance kid, Bruce. There yeah, you go. Yeah. There you All go. Right. Let's go to the next story. Quickies. Cam Newton. Decided to take some cake on a plane, Sarah. And, <laughs> like, I, as a lover of cake, I appreciate this. Like, if you got a cake and you can take a cake on a plane, you take that cake on a plane. But uh, not I've only had is enough the easy... with these GD cakes on this GD <laughs> plane. <laughs> you can take it from there. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, but it had me wondering what the weirdest thing you've taken on a plane is. And don't answer now, Fitz. We'll get to it later. I want to ask the uh, listeners to at Spade and Fitz, at Sarah Spain, at Jason Fitz. What is the weirdest thing you have taken on a plane? Not packed in your luggage, but onto the plane with you. I know my answer. Uh, I also know that I was once on a flight with a gentleman who wore a mascot head the entire flight uh, and then was eventually cut off from beverages of the adult nature as he was drinking them through the hole in the mascot's face for the first hour or two of the plane flight. Got a little bit uh, unruly. Uh, did continue to wear the mascot head throughout, uh, but was no longer able to drink. Uh, that was one of the weirdest things I've seen someone take on a plane. We'll get your answers a little bit later. The real truth that we've now learned is that producer Devin needs to get to work on getting Samuel L. Jackson yeah. to give us some sort of a cakes on a plane line. Yeah, That's all I need. Exactly. Devin's going to make that happen. I have nothing but the utmost in faith in him. All right, those are some quickies. Coming up next, the reporter who pushed the Deshaun Watson story forward will join us. We'll get her thoughts not just on the story but on what Deshaun had to say today. We'll do it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, presented by Progressive Insurance. And obviously, the story around Deshaun Watson continues to develop. We have been waiting to hear him speak. And now, for the first time since the great New York Times article was written, he did speak to the public. So, uh, as we continue to break it down, what better way to do that than by talking to the person that wrote the article that has caused much of this reaction to be so public. She joins us now. Jenny Rentes joins us, New York Times sports reporter. You can follow her on Twitter, at Jenny Rentes. Jenny, always appreciate your time, really appreciate your work. Before we go anywhere, I want you to hear what Deshaun Watson said today at his press conference when he was asked specifically if he had booked massages with 66 different women. I mean, I can answer it. I don't think so uh, for what me and my attorneys went through. But at the same time, you know, that's a that's more of a, a legal question that I can't really get into details about. Um, so you'll probably have to ask my attorneys and things like that to confirm. Jenny, what do you make of that response? Yeah, so I guess, uh, you know, I, what I would say is we're really confident in the number that we put out. Um, and also it was an at least number. Um, by no means do I think that, you know, I got the exhaustive list 
but I was able to confirm that he had appointments with 66 people uh, in this time frame. And, um, you know, I think it was important to, to put a number out there just to sort of show how many people he was in contact with, uh, how his habit of seeking out massages, uh, seeking out women for massages, uh, some of them who weren't licensed or who focused on other areas of cosmetology or facials, um, uh, you know, I think it really spoke to kind of how big a part of his life uh, this was. And, you know, all 66 um, did not say that something happened in their appointments. You know, some of those um, people included in that tally uh, were people who supported him and statements through his lawyers. Um, but I do think the number is significant because, um, you know, it's it's far above and beyond what other athletes say they have used you know most uh star athletes have a, a small number of people that they work with and trust uh, jenny one of the fascinating parts of your story was the revelation that he had asked someone with the texans to help him draft an nda to be used in some of these instances after the event of the massage but before paying women um normally you would imagine if someone was worried about protecting themselves against somebody interacting in a strange way or otherwise not doing a good job, the NDA would come beforehand um, and not after the service. Uh, how important was getting that part of the Texan story uh, right and understanding the interactions that he had with the Texans? Because that's something we had not really heard about this story before. Yeah, I think it's an important piece of the whole picture because one of the things that, you know, I think – our reporting has showed or that I've learned through our reporting is kind of the structures and people in place that allowed for some of these behaviors to occur. That's um, not saying that the Texans knew exactly what he was doing in massages. I, I think we still have yet to determine exactly what they knew at various points in time. However, they did provide him with some of the resources um, to, you know, continue this habit. And the NDA was one of the main examples of that. The massage therapist that he had worked with, um, she had given him three massages. She later filed a lawsuit. But at the time, this was November 2020, she posted about him on social media, some of their message exchanges, his phone number and cash app. And she also wrote, I could really expose you. Uh, Watson shows these messages to the Texans head of security. Uh, and then he said in his deposition that he found an NDA in his locker. And uh, as you mentioned, Sarah, he then brought that NDA to appointments. You know, in one case, uh, the woman was <clears throat> wanted to ensure that the appointment would be professional. And he told her that he would, oh, yeah, you know, no doubt. Uh, I even have an NDA of therapist signed too. Um which is a little hard to explain how a document to protect him should reassure her, but that was the explanation right. he gave over text. And then in the another appointment, uh, days after getting the NDA, as, as you just laid out, he told the woman, according to her lawsuit, that she needed to sign the NDA in order for him to pay. So it's clear that once he obtained the NDA, um, it did become a major part of how he interacted with different women giving him massages. We're talking to Jenny Renters, New York Times sports reporter on Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. So I've, I've, con I've contended several times uh, using your work that if you guys were able to find at least 66 different women that interacted with him, 
that the league should have been able to do the, the same. In your reporting, have you been able to get a sense of how many of these women the NFL has actually attempted to talk to? Yeah, I mean, I can say that there are certainly women that I have spoken with who the NFL has not spoken with. Um, I don't know the full extent or scope of their investigation. We know that they spoke to, I believe it was 10 or 11 of the plaintiffs uh, last summer. Um, but there are, of course, uh, additional, you know, 40 or so um, women that we include in our tally beyond the now 24 plaintiffs. So, you know, I, I think it's important to hear directly from these women and to hear their accounts. And I think that was what we've discussed with the Browns investigation as being a major flaw, not trying to reach out to the women or their attorneys, not trying to hear directly from the people who are in the massage room with him, you know, for me, starting to cover this story in March of 2021, um, I didn't know what to make of it at first. I think we all were kind of caught off guard. And for me, the first time I spoke with someone who had been in a massage room with him and explained his inappropriate behavior in, in her account, I think that was really eye-opening for me. And I think you know, you can understand a little bit better some of the behaviors these women say are at play. You can understand sort of the pattern of facts that is established through their accounts and also the power imbalance that exists in a room between a, you know, a prominent client, a star athlete uh, and a massage therapist. It's Spain and Fitz. We're talking to Jenny Vrentas. You should read her story in the New York Times about the allegations against Deshaun Watson and the latest findings from her reporting. You can also follow her at Jenny Vrentas. I'm wondering, Jenny, if anyone from Deshaun's camp has reached out to you uh, other than whatever communication you've had intentionally with them to report this out. And I guess by that, I mean, have they tried to convince you to stop engaging in this kind of reporting? Have they tried to offer up alternative ideas as to what's going on here uh, because it does feel like there are not that many reporters who are engaging as directly as you are with the continued pursuit of potential future cases or more women that had involvement with him. You know, I've had limited contact. It's mostly been around me when I, I'm working on stories, reaching out to his lawyers or his camp for comment. Um, that has been, you know, most of the interactions recently. I think early on there were, you know, we had a little bit more exchanges. Again, I'm, I'm trying to learn as much as I can. I'm, I'm trying to make sure that I put forth uh, things that are factual. And, you know, I will say um, the 66 number was something that we brought to his lawyers. You know, he said in his comments today, as you played at the beginning of the show, you, know, you have to ask his lawyers. Um, and that was one of the things I included in my email to them, um, giving them the opportunity to comment. And um, at no point did they dispute that number in our communication. So I just wanted to add that as well. You guys can follow her on Twitter at Jenny Rentas. Check must out have the forgotten articles. since then, Fitz. What? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is. slipped his mind. That yeah. They, uh, that Jenny, uh, real quick, before we let you go, I, I know we're up against the time wise, but I got to ask you, for you, what's the next step for what you guys are working on? Well, you know, I think this has been an important story from the first time I spoke to a woman who was in the room with him, as I just described. Um, I, I knew that this was an important story, and we've just stayed with it. Um, our goal has always been to find out as many facts as we can, you know, free of spin, um, 
free of, you know, whatever, you know, uh, either side wants out there to just get as much as information as we could corroborate it and present it to the public. And I don't think, you know, this story is over yet. I mean, obviously, we're all waiting for NFL discipline. Uh, the suits will go to trial next year unless there's a settlement before then. But, you know, the discovery window isn't closed. There's additional questions about the Texans' role. So, you know, I do think there's a lot more reporting yet to be done. Um, and I think, you know, there has been a sense of after there were no criminal charges um, and the Browns signed Watson, you know, his camp and, and Watson, you know, seems to be urging everyone to move on. I mean, I, I think Rusty Harden directly urged everybody to let Deshaun move on. But the reality is there's a lot of women who have come forward, um, some at great risks to their livelihood and their privacy, um, and they're not going anywhere. So I right. think we need to continue covering the story and, and giving it the attention it deserves. Jenny, we always appreciate you joining us and uh, really appreciate your work. It's been uh, really helpful for all of us to, to get to read it. Check her out on the New York Times, New York Times sports reporter Jenny Brentas. Jenny, really appreciate you. you hanging out with us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, I cannot say it loudly enough. You should follow her. You should read it. She's been doing a great de- great job since day one on this story. So before you say anything uh, about it and your thoughts, at least take the time to read her reporting because it has been spectacular. Coming up next, the Warriors role players are stepping up, and it almost didn't happen. We'll explain it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We all saw the Warriors beat the Celtics. Everybody's talking about it. And particularly social media last night all the way into today has been talking about Andrew Wiggins, rightfully so. 26 points, 13 boards in that game. And it became the Andrew Wiggins game. But, Sarah, I kept thinking about what might have been. And in some ways, the way we credit success and failure is interesting to me because so often when a player doesn't pan out, that player is a bust. And, you know, when an organization drafts somebody and that player isn't any good, it turns out that that organization must have obviously picked somebody that was terrible. We rarely acknowledge the other side of it. And Bobby Marks tweeted out, last night Andrew Wiggins had four head coaches in six seasons while in Minnesota I understand the Timberwolves grew frustrated with him but stability within an organization can go a long way I kept watching Andrew Wiggins last night thinking this is the greatness of Andrew Wiggins sure it's a great moment for him but it also is a great moment for an organization and a coaching staff that decided to look at a player and say how can we use him to the best of his ability system matters more than we want it to sometimes when we analyze players and their successes and failures Oh, absolutely. But the problem is, and I think that this is something that's been exposed by this finals as much as any before, uh, is that oftentimes what the media covers is the easy, dramatic storylines without the depth of understanding. And that's something that can be said about Wiggins, where you would rather criticize him for being, quote unquote, a bust than you would for understanding the way having a a carousel of coaches come through and different teammates and everything else might affect your growth. Um, The same way we're really focused on talking about Steph's individual role in the legacy and timeline of NBA history, because we may be some of us or the fans can't understand specifics of X's and O's. We're talking about Draymond's podcast over and over and over again instead of talking about the matchups in the game. We do this a lot, and in the case of athletes who are struggling or who are not living up to expectation, it can become, I think, incredibly overwhelming and then contribute to their failings in ways that we probably haven't discussed a lot in the past, but 
hopefully we'll do a little bit more now that we're getting more into talking about mental health and stuff like that. Um, but you're right. This has been a situation that has put the onus on Wiggins to be a massive contributor, especially defensively on Tatum. And then last night to really take a step forward in terms of being the leading scorer, the guy who was going to carry the team. And Chris Carlin talked about it on Greeny today. Um, a lot of people... Maybe back to what I was talking about before, who are looking for an easy, dramatic narrative to get people fired up with, are saying he might be the MVP over Steph. As much as we can talk about everything that Steph has done offensively, and I know there's an argument to be had here, and I know that if they actually ultimately win this series, will be the MVP. Everything that Andrew Wiggins has done has proven to be the most valuable in this series to the Golden State Warriors to be where they are, especially in the last couple of games. I, Sarah, I, I, I want to believe this. I want to go with it. I want to, I, I want, it's such a fun, sexy story to make Wiggins the finals MVP. That's, it, it's cute. But we can also go too far. Like, I can sit here and credit everything that Andrew Wiggins has done and say, man, what a great couple of games he's had. It has been absolutely lights out. But it is pretty simple for anybody to see part of the reason that that's even been an opportunity for him is because the one thing the Warriors have to make sure they do is account for Steph, right? Like, there, there has to be some core belief that if Steph's not on the floor, Andrew Wiggins probably isn't going for 26 and 13. But if Andrew Wiggins isn't on the floor, Steph is still going to usually get his. Like, I think it's a little oversimplification to say his success in this series makes him the MVP without understanding the context of what's happening around him and how it benefits even with Wiggins. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's something that you could have said at every turn for the Warriors when they've had a championship run is that you might give Iguodala the credit for X or Y or you might look at KD and what he did, but the team runs around Steph and all of the decision-making from the opponent is geared towards stopping him from just absolutely destroying you from outside. So every opportunity that his teammates had last night came from them deciding to blitz Steph so he couldn't do to them what he did in game four. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't have to step up. That doesn't take away from the defensive effort. And Wiggins is certainly putting up a good argument for stealing that trophy from Steph. But I think we expect Steph's role to be as outsized as it's always been. And so when somebody else steps up and outperforms expectations, that becomes something that feels more revelatory to us than, than you know, yeah, well, of course, Steph is the most important player and everything that they do is based around him. Does that make him the MVP? Yeah, it actually kind of does. It does. <laughs> Even if the other guys get in the numbers partly as a result of that. I, I I love the word revelatory. I'm going to steal it from you if I can ever remember how to use it. But I, what you're saying means so much to the way we cover everything. And, I, and I'm not just talking about the NBA. Like, you can talk about quarterbacks coming into this year in the NFL. You can talk about the NHL. Every single sport has guys that we heap expectations on because of who they are from the minute the season starts. And as a result, we view everything that they do differently from then on versus the person that comes in and is the unexpected contributor that then we have to take unexpected contribution and for some reason turn it into this huge landmark thing when just being unexpected contributions should be rewardable enough. Right. I mean, there's any number of ways you can look at this series, and it's Spain and Fitz, by the way, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, and decide that that person has had an outside effect. Kevin, or sorry, Kavan Looney, I should say, plus 48 in 108 Mm. minutes out there. With Looney and Draymond together, plus 25. But guess what happens when you take Looney off the court? Draymond without Looney in 117 minutes is a minus 21. Looney without Draymond in 50 minutes, plus 23. Is he the MVP? No. Is he changing a ton in this series? Absolutely. And that's why I think it's been 
unfair to the Warriors that every single piece of conversation up to this point has been about Steph. And if Steph does this and that, then they win because it's ignored all the important efforts from others. But it's also equally as important to recognize that this team revolves around how they choose to defend Steph and then also that he has had some incredibly important defensive stops and his numbers defensively uh, as the primary defender are much better than many would have expected coming into this series who dogged his defense. Tune into the ESPN Daily Podcast gets you a deep dive into a single story from one of ESPN's hundreds of reporters presented by Supercuts. Download, subscribe, and review ESPN Daily, available wherever you enjoy your podcast. We don't have time to play his uh, his answer on this or the conversation on this, but one of the other unexpected stories. We're going to get into it. Save it. Let's save it. Let's talk about it at the end because I think it's such a wild story that it deserves a little bit of time for us to get into because as we're talking about all these unexpected contributors to the Warriors, that one might be the wildest for us to now hear about the origin story of. We will do that before we end the show, but obviously <laughs> we are close to, uh, we're 51 days away from the NFL preseason starting, mandatory minicamps going on we're going to talk to somebody that covers his beloved Bears next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Too early for the NFL? Nah. I just saw Mina Kimes post that she had a hundred-something minute podcast smack in the middle of the offseason. There's plenty to talk about when it comes to football. And my Chicago Bears are back to work and already making headlines. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. ESPN's Bears reporter and radio host, who you often hear on this very show, Courtney Cronin, is with us. Courtney, I can remember far back enough to last year when Justin Fields, the quarterback for the Bears, said things didn't feel all that fast. He was he felt comfortable, and everybody railed on him for that. So now this year he says, yeah, I'm not quite ready yet. I'm glad the season isn't starting yet, and everyone's like, yeah, you're a loser. So uh, he really can't win, huh? <laughs> Um, I mean, the self-awareness that he stressed today just about, no, I don't want the season to start tomorrow. Like, I felt that because I am nowhere near ready for the <laughs> NFL season to start. Like, I know people hate the off season because, like, what are they going to do without football? Like, baseball is boring, et cetera. Like, no, we need as much time as we can get from now until week one in September. I want to slow play this thing. And I'm with Justin Fields because – you know, he's got to learn an entire playbook, Sarah, and everything that he went through last year, there's a lot he's got to unlearn in terms of, like, bad habits, mm-hmm. bad technique, and that's why you heard him so often this offseason talking about changing his mechanics. Some of his throwing motion has been altered. He's working on his footwork uh, because this offense is predicated off of rhythm and timing, so you've got to hit your receivers in stride, and that doesn't take, you know, five weeks to learn that and then you're good to go like that's a long process so when camp's over in a couple days he still has a ton to do and it's not just learning the playbook it's getting together with his receivers on the side figuring out what that looks like in the off season and, and kind of balancing the wanting of, of like learning a playbook being patient with yourself but also wanting it to click and to feel like second nature because that's going to take time so I think what he said today was a true indication of where this entire offense is at. It's not just him. It's the fact that the offense nowhere the offense is nowhere close to where it needs to be, and, and he's aware of that. Well, Courtney, we always talk about young quarterbacks and the struggle that can come when there's change because they have to go through this process. What's the balance been like for him right now between fixing what you just mentioned and then just learning terms and, and plays and, and a new playbook and a new concept? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's been a lot. You know, you hear that term drinking from a fire hose uh, mm-hmm. so often with young players that, you know, you think about how much you have to consume and how overwhelming it can get. And then on top of that, when you see what we've seen during OTAs and now day one of minicamp, it's been up and down. Like, it hasn't looked great by any stretch. And I think being okay with that as a quarterback, realizing, hey, they're throwing a ton at me right now. I'm going to have some days where I don't look great out there. And we saw him throw a, you know, a pick to, a pick six today. It was a series that was a pick six. He had a pass batted down at the line of scrimmage, and then the next play after that he threw an incomplete pass. So not getting discouraged within himself uh, in those moments, I think, is what he's working on right now. And, you know, he talked about you never dwell on an interception. It's always on to the next play. But actually seeing that carried out I think is easier said than done. And, you know, Matt Eberflus said that the one thing that he, you know, when that stuff happens, being able to bounce back from that, it's not just something he wants Fields to do. Uh, He wants everybody to do it. But I think with Fields, you can see it happen probably more easily than you see other players have to bounce back because when a quarterback throws an interception, it can change the tone of the game. So not making the same mistake twice, that's Justin Fields' mantra right now and what he talked about at several points today. And I think it's kind of just holding on to that while realizing it's not going to look perfect for a while and being okay with that. Because I think once you can accept that, you can, you know, hone in on certain things and then take smaller steps that add up to bigger steps along the way, if that makes sense. Courtney Cronin is with us, our ESPN Bears reporter on Spain and Fitz. You can follow her at Courtney R. Cronin. Uh, lots of conversation about the O-line. Feels like there always is, but especially so when you've got a young quarterback that you'd like to have some time to figure things out, literal time behind the line. But former Bear Olin Krutz tweeted, by midseason we'll be more worried about the Bears' defensive line, not the offensive line. Bold prediction. I don't need to stress about both of them, do I? Well, um, you know, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that take from Olin Krutz because the Bears, while they while they don't have Robert Quinn in camp right now, and I'm sure that it's probably part of what he's getting at, you know, there's it feels like they're headed for a holdout. I mean, this is a non-excused absence during yeah. mandatory minicamp, so feels like there's something there. And, you know, we heard what he said earlier this offseason about wanting to be here. Well, he's not there, and it's mandatory minicamp, so it signifies to me that, you know, maybe he wants to finish out his career somewhere else. He's 32 years old. He, you know, is he earned that right. And, I, and you know, I feel like with the offensive line, there will be more concern there than probably with the defensive line because at the end of the day, the defense right now is ahead of the offense. We expected that. Um, and it's not, it's not difficult when you can short – when they're switching from a 3-4 to a 4-3. Like when you have a pass rush that's there and they've got young pass rushers and they've bolstered that part of – the, the defense, I think they should be okay. What I'd worry about with the offensive line right now is the fact that, you know, they, they're not married to any of the guys, especially with, like, their tackle spots. Like, that's it, it's not a good look that your second-round pick from last year is your second-team right tackle and has consistently been that guy in the spring. Like, I, I don't care what anybody says about it being a fluid situation. That's not a good look when a rookie fifth-rounder from this year is taking all the reps at left tackle. Right. So it feels like it's so fluid that that's not going to come together anytime soon. Fields talked about it, and he said, no, like I'm okay with that because it gives them more time to figure out their best starting five. But the O-line was rough last year, and it just feels like they're kind of headed back towards that same 
um, that same area of having some issues with it because of the personnel that they just that they you know that they the kind of hand that they're dealt there. All right, Courtney. So you got an O line that's got a bunch of questions, a quarterback that's still trying to develop, four new starters on the defensive side of the ball, and a defense that's learning a new system. What's a reasonable expectation for this Bears team this year? You know, I think it's fair to put them in the five to six win category. I'm sorry, Sarah. Um, But Sarah knows that, too. Like, all Bears fans who, like, are realistic about this thing realize that they tore this roster down to the studs and they're trying Mm -hmm. to rebuild something. I know that's not comfortable for Bears fans because it feels like they're in this perennial state of yo-yoing around a rebuild, even though they made the playoffs twice under Matt Nagy. But now they're trying to do it differently with a new head coach, a new general manager. And I think the expectation that they'll be at the bottom of the NFC North this year as they can try to, like, set themselves up to be a contender maybe for the division, maybe even, like, contending for the playoffs a year or two from now. But they're a ways away. And I think that that's just, like, the realistic way to look at this situation, mm-hmm. knowing that there were so many talent deficiencies, and there still are. You can't address them all in one off season. Even though if, if this Robert Quinn thing ends up panning out to where he does get traded, the Bears will have north of like $37 million, I think, in, in available cap space. So they could make a splash this offseason and maybe pick up somebody that you're not thinking about, maybe another offensive lineman, um, and, and kind of set themselves up to, you know, to contend two, a year or two from now, but like not going all in and making any sort of win-now moves with their personnel. Courtney Cronin with us talking Chicago Bears at Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, presented by Progressive Insurance. Courtney, let's talk about a couple sexy positions before we let you go here. A couple more minutes. Darnell Mooney, uh, Montgomery. There's some players that could be great in the right system with the opportunity to be good. What's the upside? What's the excitement around this team? Where do people see players that could take a big step forward this year? I think Mooney is a great one in terms of receivers in the league that don't get enough hype around them. And, yeah, it's hard when you saw what this offense was with Matt Nagy calling plays and, you know, the situation that Justin Fields and the receivers were put in last year. I mean, there's a reason that, you know, the, the relationship between Allen Robinson and this club fractured uh, as, as harshly as it did. But I think Mooney coming off a 1,000-yard receiving season and all the work that he's put in with, with, in with Justin Fields, this offseason, knowing – what he what Fields does else doesn't have around him. Like, I mean, no one's getting super excited about any of the other free agent acquisitions that they brought in, and, and rightfully so. I, I think that Mooney, by by nature, would be a number two receiver, but in this offense, he's probably going to be the number one. So I think that that's something for, you know, for anybody, like, looking to start building their fantasy team roster. Like, keep that name out as an option in one of the later rounds. And, you know, David Montgomery, I know what people think about running backs and, you know, that this franchise may just want to, like, move on after this year, but he's entering a contract year, and he's got a lot to prove. I mean, he's been the top guy here ever since Tariq Cohen couldn't recover from his ACL injury, so there's a lot to like about both of those guys being, you know, the the top guys that the Bears have at the respective depth charts, and, you know, the offense is going to be a lot more balanced than it was in years past. Like when you have a young quarterback, the best thing to do is not put him in a situation where he's dropping back 40 times a game because the defense is going to be able to like read that and just tee off on you with their pass rush. So having a more balanced game with the rushing attack and Montgomery being a huge part of that, I think is what people should expect. 
Awesome stuff, Courtney. Excited to have you keep coming back and talk about the team. Maybe it'll be once, maybe twice at the season since they're only going to win five games and no one's going to want to talk about them and I'm depressed. Uh, <laughs> well, really, it is your show, so you can, you can dictate very how true. often we talk about the Bears. That is a great point. Uh, by the way, Courtney, uh, looking forward to seeing you at the Von McClure-Jeff Dickerson Foundation event coming up in Chicago at Tau on Tuesday the 19th. Hopefully people will get their tickets, tvmjdfoundation.org. We can honor our colleagues. I'm excited to see you there. Thanks so much for the insight. No problem. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thanks, Courtney. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Progressive can help you protect your home, auto, boat, motorcycle, ATV, RV, and more. And if something wasn't mentioned that you had in mind, find out if it can be covered at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE, because it probably can be. Coming up, Gary Payton II almost had a role with the Warriors that wasn't the one we've seen him have throughout these finals. We'll explain next. It's made it fit. Listen, a, a crock pot full of Thanksgiving stuffing, that's fine by me. There's a lid on that. Might be a slightly warm, delicious smell, but not too bad. Is the lid an staying entire, on it? Entire seafood meal, crab legs and such, absolutely not. That's where I draw the line, Fitz. In Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. I would imagine that a crockpot lid could stay on. First of all, there's those little uh, doohangies on the sides that you, oh, yeah. that you put over the handles when you want the lid to stay on. Uh, I still think if you really need your mom's stuffing so badly, you could put it in a Tupperware and take it with you. I don't know if you need to put the whole crock pot on the flight with you, but I'm okay with that, especially if it's cooled down. Probably doesn't smell at all. But actually opening up a full container of seafood and crab legs and eating them on the plane? Absolutely not. No. That's worse than McDonald's on a plane, which I already think is one of the gravest offenses of our society. Because well, McDonald's I mean, smells no like trash. McDonald's on a plane, on a plane sometimes. No, like the only, the eat only it before you get eat. on the plane, or get something that doesn't smell bad. Well, Sorry, McDonald's doesn't smell bad. French fries uh, smell delightful. No, delightful. McDonald's on a plane is an affront to everybody else. It's Spain and Fitz, and we've been talking about this because Cam Newton uh, took cake on a plane, and then apparently didn't finish it. Left two big slices, so he'd had enough of this mother effing cake on a plane that's why he didn't finish it but it had us asking the weirdest thing that you've ever bought brought on a plane and fits i i'm sure i have others but the one that stands out to me is when i lived in la i would come home to chicago and i would want my la friends to have true chicago deep dish pizza and my favorite pizza place here eduardo's sold half-baked frozen pizzas that then you would put into the oven to finish cooking. So I would put them in my carry-on above, you know, the seats. And by the time I got home, it had thawed. I would throw it in the oven and everybody would get a beautiful, delicious deep dish pizza. Kind of weird, but kind of great. Look, I, I appreciate that idea. Uh, I've never flown with, like, I for all the, the, I can't even count the number of flights I've taken in my life. I rarely fly with weird things. I think pizza is a, a remarkably smart idea to fly with. Yeah. I used to, I used to order a Chicago pizza and a New York cheesecake for the first uh, first Sunday of football season every year, just to, nice. to bring stuff in from everywhere. Like I'm all in for this. That, it's a great idea by you. I just, I'm still shook it that you you don't appreciate stinky fast food on a plane. I mean, no. I, in fairness though, like I'm sort of I'm a plane tutor, so like I, I like it's my chance to empty out my stomach, right? I can just sit there and just let go, especially if you've got anybody. Uh, sitting around you uh, that looks tutor. suspect. T-O-O-T-E-R. Yeah, you like just I'm, fart I'm on a plane. Gonna, 
I'm going to fluffy on a plane. You know, that way. Why? Uh, that, like, why not? Like, I can get everything out. Nobody's going to ever think it's me. I'm sitting there wow. with my headphones on. I'm not talking to anybody. You're I truly a bad a person deep down. You're a deep down <laughs> bad person. You pretend to be nice. And then the more you reveal about yourself, the worse you get. I'm, I fear for the future of our relationship that the more you talk about yourself, the less I will be willing to engage with you both on the air and off. The, be- uh, the best not- is when you got somebody that's either really young or really old sitting around you because they're not going to say anything about it. Then you could just let, let go and let God, Sarah. Let go and let God. I'm going to choose to move on. Other people <laughs> also brought food on planes. Uh, at CJ Zero said he brought live lobsters, and he was not alone. At least two people said they have brought live lobsters on a plane. Uh, Keystone 8435 uh, is the one who mentioned the guy who brought a whole crock pot of his mom's stuffing and produced a photo of said guy walking down the aisle holding a crock pot. Um, I liked uh, Map Dakuma, also brought cake. Said TSA didn't trust it, but didn't have a way to test it, so let them bring it on. And then when they're on the flight, they realize they forgot forks. That's disappointing. Oh. Um, Michelle Steele, our own Michelle Steele from ESPN, uh, schlepped a glass hookah from Egypt one time. Uh, oh. Fast Car Marty, just like me, frozen pizza from Gino's East. Got to do it. Derek Christ brought a didgeridoo coming back mm. from Australia. That is a big item to bring onto a plane. Tougher to check, though. Uh, Phantom. Full lightsaber. Southwest said I could take it instead of checking it. A couple people had lightsabers that they brought on planes. Uh, Talking nothing said, does emotional baggage count? Uh, No, because that's not weird. That's expected. Uh, Gaunt Tyler, cherry pie. I was in Door County, Wisconsin. Cherry country really wanted a cherry pie. TSA had a debate with me on whether the pie filling was a liquid, but they eventually let me bring it on. Uh, Rotten Banana 76, a couple pounds of gyros sauce and pita for friends who moved out of Vegas. I think the whole plane hated us. Yeah, a couple pounds of gyros are going to have a distinct scent. Uh, Evan Flay, a single 10-pound dumbbell for a series of hotel workouts. Uh, uh, that, I respect that, though. Like, that makes I do. a lot of sense. You know but what have you, you ever, need? have you ever walked around with a weight? Because I made the mistake of buying some hand weights once at Target, like, eight blocks away, and then I realized that I was now carrying... 20 pounds or 35 pounds or whatever in my bag as I ran my errands. Yeah, it was a massive I, fail. That's an extra, um, that's an extra workout. Congratulations. Yeah. Finally, at Jess Beck 3, who also had a great photo of this, back in 99 when I played football, I used to carry my samurai sword to games on the plane. This is when we would load the plane directly on the tarmac. That's me holding my sword in the picture. Hashtag Cyclone Nation. Hashtag Iowa State. Uh, definitely pre-9-11 if you were allowed to just bring a samurai sword on the plane with you, regardless of whether it was for a football reason. Uh, good stuff from the people, Fitz. Yeah, I'm still, like, I'm looking at the picture of the seafood feast that is on your Twitter, and yeah, I, look, I, I got a lot of respect for it. I don't think I would enjoy it for the uh, for the entirety of the trip, but I got a lot of respect I for don't anybody respect it. that brings up that much. You know what on- I do have respect for, though? Gary Payton II. We promised this. We're going to play it. Here's something Malika Andrews got out of the Warriors player this week. Folks at home might not know this, but at the beginning of the season, after you'd been cut by several teams, after you spent some time in the G League, you were looking at the Golden State Warriors to apply for a job. But that job wasn't on the basketball court. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, I knew my chances. You know, they were, they were telling me my chances was kind of low to making a team. So I was just trying to – they had a video coordinating job open. And I was trying to, you know, get in that job, uh, try to ask for an interview for that job just to stay around this team and, you know, be around the team and see if I can help. And, you know, you never know, a 10-day might pop up, you know, in between that, 
in between that video coordinating room. So, um, you know, I just stayed with it. And, uh, you know, next thing happened, they got a call saying we figured it out. And, uh, you know, I'm staying. So that was uh, no more video coordinating job. <laughs> yeah, that's a story for you. This guy's out there getting standing ovations, making huge plays. And Fitz, he was almost a video coordinator, which is a job that, in theory, if you or I were qualified and knew enough, could do ourselves. Yeah, that's a, speaks to his stick to though, that is such a huge part of his story and now a huge part of the Warrior story as they try and win a championship. Yeah, some great stories coming out of these finals. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.